We're in Acts 17. And what I want to do is try to do something a little different. I'm going to still go into the detail. Glad to have Eric here to help us with, with that part of the Greek and stuff. But I don't ever seem to get to the punchline because I get into so much detail on each verse. So what here, the overall view is important. So I'm going to try to take us through to the end of the pericope and then cover the big picture and then go back and dig down on some of the details. So let's try it that way. And I also really do invite lots of discussion, contribution. If you have a question, ask it. If I just sit and lecture really quick, I notice nobody says anything. So um, we'll try to do it that way. So the passages, I, I have a little review here, back to 26. And so I'll begin us with prayer, and then we'll do the overview. We've covered this verse already, and then we'll go back, okay? Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that we can gather in your name. Thank you that your gospel here intersected in the middle of world history and demonstrated truth, hope, salvation, and things that you have revealed to everyone to be preached everywhere. Give us wisdom as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I covered this slide, but let's read it. Paul, again, setting the stage. He's on what's called Mars Hill. And there are Stoics and um, Epicureans, philosophers, on this Oropicus. And it's probably referring to the council. There's a place and there's a council that's in charge of it. And as we go on, it looks like the council is kind of the key issue. So he's there, and this is part of his message. And it says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And we've covered this, and I'm willing to go back, but for now I want us to think about some of the issues of God being sovereign, drawing boundaries, and just what Paul is claiming in front of these really brilliant Greek philosophers about God and his rule over the creation. Why did he do this? He did this, he did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now he's citing uh, a source from the th third century BC, Aratus, Phenomena, uh, and in that poem, this word genos or genos offspring is used. And I think, and we can discuss this, that Paul is taking their term, genos, and he is going to reference the creation and the source of mankind through Adam. Okay? And this fits with something that Eric talked about here the last time he taught Sunday school. The entire human race descends from Adam and Eve. That's a biblical claim. So they have some idea that we're the offspring, but they don't really understand the details. Do you have anything to say about that, Eric? No, that's... Okay. So, and that they might reach out and find him. And I may have mentioned this last week. The Greeks, the Greeks show some uncertainty. And some people translate this, feel around and look for him. Dr. Schnabel, one of my really best sources, the, and I, the one I got recently, and his commentary in Acts says this. He translates it so that they would seek God and perhaps feel around for him and find him. It's like groping in the dark. I wonder if we can find God. And I think that's probably a good 
uh, translation or a point of the sense of this, even though he's not far from any one of us. So starting from their philosophy and their trying to understand God, the Epicureans and Stoics weren't polytheists. They were skeptical about that. And so they were debating ideas. And they had this unknown God. Paul starts with that because there was a, a statue of the unknown God. So the Greek shows uncertainty because they have no special revelation. And like all people everywhere, without special revelation, without God's intervention, without God having acted, without God having revealed, or God having spoken, they're groping around the dark. But they had a sense of there's a divine being or divine beings and that people are somehow offspring, genos. So they're groping around in the dark. So this is a reference to the one man back in verse 26. And as I said, I want to cover the section and then go back and dig down on details and we can ask some questions here. Verse 29. So he picks up in that word genos, being God's offspring. That's their word. He picks up on it. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned fashioned by human art and imagination. Wow, there's a lot to say about that. So Paul says, and I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible because I thought it was helpful in regard to how the Greek was translated. Um, I have here my Greek. Um, art and imagination would be like a techne is where we get our word for technology. So that would be a craft or craftsmanship or something we could do. And imagination um, and, and thumesis, and thumesis could be a thought, a device, a contrivance. And uh, so we can have our technology, we can have our contrivance or our imagination, but does that tell us who God really is? Frankly, I, I have to think of Hebrews when I'm studying this section of Hebrew or Acts 17, where uh, it begins with Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, that God has spoken. God has spoken in many places, many portions, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And so uh, the supremacy of true, inerrant revelation God's actions, God's words, God's intervention, supremely demonstrated through the person of Christ who was raised from the dead, which is where Paul's going, is what makes the truth knowable and makes everyone accountable. It's not that people aren't accountable just based on general revelation, because Romans 1 says they are. Every possible means of knowing God or God making himself known, whether it's general revelation, special revelation, and so forth, man has sinned against because of uh, wickedness in the fall. Now, the words here for art and imagination are also used in Isaiah 42, 17. Isaiah forty two seventeen. It says here, they are turned back and utterly put to shame those who trust, by the way, the Septuagint, in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. Okay, here we go. You're our gods. It just shows wickedness. See, when you don't have divine revelation, you don't have an inerrant Bible that is God speaking to man, what you end up with is art and imagination. And we see that really in our common culture, don't we? 
Well, not only that, everything needs to be imagined. Then reimagined. Let's reimagine and whatever it is they want to reimagine. And this maybe seems new to people, but frankly, when I was in seminary in the 90s, and then the next decade when I researched and wrote about the emergent church, all of this was already there. In fact, it was full-blown in the 90s in seminary. Everything was imagination. God has spoken. They wouldn't accept that. Who are you to say that your truth is right? You have your truth. I have my truth. And so let's imagine a new truth. But that's just silly. Now, um, Ron, yes, bring the mic to Ron. Good, I want to get that mic dialed in anyhow. And I'll uh, make sure this is going to work. No, Ron's right there. That's Ron. Sorry. Thank you, Carly. I know if any, if many of you are fil- fil- familiar with Marsha Montenegro. Yes, she's very site. good. She had a pretty good article this morning. She returned to talking about a guy that has some kind of king therapy or king something. He's a quote-unquote Christian uh, therapist that has his, you know, electromagnetic therapy that he uses on people. But the point of the article was good because the terms that are, they're really new age. It comes from Eastern mysticism and new age kinds of thinking. All these practices that he does, they've been reimagined with Christian terms. Right. Just repackaged. And they just keep repackaging this stuff. It's the same old junk. A new guy, a new snake oil salesman, right. c- couched in Christian terms. Yeah. And it's just a return to the same junk again. That's a good point, Ron. And I met Marsha at a think tank in uh, Escondido when I was out there. She's a great uh, person who understands the issues and warns the church. I appreciate that. I appreciate her ministry. Thank you. So here's the question. When it comes to things that are essential for salvation, guilt, sin, repentance, redemption, atonement, the promise of eternal life, our eternal hope. Is our imagination sufficient? No. And when God uh, turns people over to a reprobate mind, All they have is their imagination. I had something else uh, I've been thinking about because there's a lot of debate just about truth or facts that can be found in general revelation. What God has done, the universe he's created out of nothing, the way this world works, what is knowable, is, okay? So people can believe things that don't fit the real world that God made. But what God has given to human beings to survive on the earth, even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, is rationality, objective fact, and the ability to accurately declare, define, explain categories. That's how we survive. And those who cannot do that have a very hard time staying alive for very long. Okay? Eventually, for example, let me give this example. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? If man is able to imagine and function by instinct, why did the building cease when God confused their languages? Um, Instinctive beasts don't have languages, unless you watch Disney cartoons. Um, And whatever beasts and creatures do in the woods or in the sea or whatever, they don't need to communicate. They have instinct. Is that right? So how was it that confusing their languages 
caused the building of the tower to stop because human beings need to use reason, categories, and the ability to communicate and function to do whatever we do. And so when I was, wrote that book about emergent, uh, progressive, this whole uh, Moltman, everything's evolving into paradise, there's no future judgment, everybody imagines their reality, we can't really know anything, I point out that they're really attacking humans creating the image of God. You can't expect that nature takes care of man because that's how we die. But if we use rationality, we learn how to till the ground, we learn the difference between thistles and corn. And it reminds me on the farm, a salesman came by and said, I told my dad that he has this product that will give him better corn and save him a lot of money. It's called Nature's Way. I don't know if mom remembers that. Was Dad tried it on the 80 across from where our new house was. But he only did like one section closest to the road. There was Nature's Way because he didn't trust the guy. And the guy said, well, the reason the corn's not doing good is there are not enough night crawlers. If you do Nature's Way... Uh, then the night crawlers come back and you get better corn and you want to buy fertilizer. So he did, like the planter went down and back, and that whole section, which wasn't very deep into the field, was nature's way. Everything else he did the way he normally farmed. Well, nature's way was yellow, tiny little ears that were barely enough that you could harvest, and then the rest of the field was just luscious, green, corn, 100 and some bushels acre, which now they... And Dad said to me, I found out what nature's way is, you go broke. (laughs) But see, the pagans think nature takes care of man. And then nature knows best. But a biblical worldview goes by, for our knowledge of God, God's self-revelation condescending to speak to us in terms we know and understand. Moral law requires category. Good and evil are categories. There's a category difference between God, the eternal non-contingent creator, and anything man fashions. Human art, techne, imagination, which would be contrivance or whatever. So the key issue is this. Are we going to be like the pagans and think that nature, and by the way, everyone in this day knew that nature was infused with spirits, right? And so so they had the demons and the gods and the goddesses and the polytheistic version, or the true God has revealed himself. And what we have before us today is the same issues. Are we going to believe that nature is going to take care of us? There's no future judgment. We can't believe what God has said. We're going to do it that way. Or are we going to believe what God has said? Yes. I would maybe add uh, God's, uh, uh, who gave us the ability to use logic in our uh, discernment as well. Yeah, logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I remember a guy that Trinity Review, we made a big deal out of that. Uh, see, the, and the attack against reason, human language, being able to convey ideas, is an attack against humans created in the image of God. And idolatry is absurd, as Paul is showing, it's my title. And I made this statement, and I think it's reflective of what Paul is saying, and that's this. The true creator cannot be less than even fallen humans who fashion idols by their imagination. So if God created everything out of nothing, and God is transcendent, 
and God is non-contingent, how could he be less than this golden calf or this idol? Well, now the Stoics and Epicureans may actually agree with that because they weren't polytheists. They were philosophers. But he said we shouldn't think this way. How do we know the true God? Now, some brilliant people, philosophers in the 19th century, say, well, we can't know God because he's so transcendent. He's beyond us. It's impossible. Could you speak to that? Yeah, Bob's talking about the new orthodox movement. It was really kind of a precursor to what we have today in the emerging church. The new orthodox movement, one of the big theologians, many of you probably remember the name Karl Barth. Um, he was a German theologian. At least that's where their ideas came from. And the idea was that God was so wholly other that we could never use language to speak of him. But what Bob and I have, have kind of pushed back against that and there's others that have done as well to say, yes, God is other. He is holy. He's different than us. But God doesn't equivocate using language. He uses something called the analogical usage of language. So even though he's different than us, he condescends to our level to speak to us by way of analogy. So we don't know what it's like to be all-powerful as he is, but he'll use other things in our lives. Like we know the power of one army is greater than the other. We know the power of one horse is greater than another. And so we know something of power. Love. Your parents loved you. You loved your parents. You love your wife. You, your, you, you, know, you love your husband. You love your children. So we know something of what love is. And so God uses language in a way that you and I can understand. So what Bob and I experienced at seminary is they tried to claim that you can no longer speak of God through language. That's what they did to us. And so you and I are talking about how the Bible is true, but they're saying you can't even know what your Bible says, that you can't ever come to truth through the language. And that really began with the New Orthodox movement. Yeah, German philosophy. And uh, so they, they were claiming all language about God is equivocation. So then it went from there to the little engine that couldn't, I call it. We can't figure anything out. Well, then, if that's the way it is, well, then whatever you imagine is as good as what anybody else imagines. And so that was really what back in the 19th century spilled into the 20th century. Well, now, in our world, that's being spilled, brought into just life. You can't know much of anything about anything. So all you're left with is imagination. And everything from biology, male, female, everything is imagination and feeling and subjective. But that's not going to be the basis ultimately of judgment because God has furnished proof which is adequate to make all humans accountable before God whether they think they can know him or not. Let me give the overview I promised earlier now that most people are here, and then I'll come back to this. Let's, just, let's try to cover some slides here. I was thinking that I'm getting so detailed on each slide that we don't get the overview, but we can come back. Now look at verse 30. Now Paul's making a command. The times of ignorance, okay? So oh, we don't know. We, we can't know God. Maybe it's this idol. Maybe it's that idol. Paul says to the brilliant philosophers in time, in space, in a real place you can go visit now. God is commanding. God, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul forgot to study the secret sensitive data and study. No, he just told the truth, whether that's what he thought they wanted to hear or not. Yes. Some of the genius, I think, in Paul's uh, uh, speech here is that when you go back to verses 27 and 28, he's actually taking that poet's own words, and then when you go a little beyond that, 
he uses that as his launching point, right. using the same person, using their words, yeah, and no, then he goes in yeah. to his... Uh, to right. his uh, well, ignorance, by the way, goes back to verse Acts 17, 23, uh, where there was a description to the unknown God. Uh, Eric, could you look that up, Acts 17, 23? A month or two ago, I was on that verse, so... Let's tie this back together. Yeah. Oh, wait. I asked somebody with no reading glasses and a small print Bible. After church, we're going to take up an offering. Yeah, I know. I've actually got it. I keep forgetting them. Somebody I keep bills from my memory, too. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> got to tease him a little bit. No, that's right. It's my memory that's bad. Oh, no, that's okay. I think I should get <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Right. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Right. So there's bookends. In, in theology, we call that or in a study of Scripture, uh, inclusio. And then unknown, ignorant, we're ignorant of God. We may have missed one. To God being declared by Paul, this is the one who's unknown to you, the true God. And this God created the entire universe out of nothing. He brought forth the entire human race from one man, Adam. And he has allowed people to go their way. He's intervened, like at the Tower of Babel, but they're living their lives, they're doing what they want to do. But now, something happened. Something happened in history that makes accountability even more profound. It's not that people were never accountable, but now God's acted in time, in space, and he commands all people everywhere to repent. Wow. And we'll come back to this. I want to, like I said, I've I got to be disciplined and try to get through this and then go back. Can I interject so, something real quick here? Yes. This is amazing to me. I'm blown away. This is, we've got two forces at work here. Now we've got the reality of God who shows up in time, space, continuum and says, I'm God and there's coming judgment, right? Repent. Repent and believe in me. And then we've got... That's real faith. That's real faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the coming judgment. We believe in his godhood. So we repent and we put our faith in Christ. Now, the other thing is called false faith, and and John Lennon sings about this. Imagine. So we've got a false faith. Imagine there's no heaven, there's no God, there's nothing. So I guess we can call this real faith and fake faith. Imagine is nothing but fake faith. That's all it is. Right. And in keeping with what Eric and I were talking about, as far as this God is so other, nobody can even talk about him. Well, the next step was because you can just be a atheist, a rationalist, say, well, we, we don't know anything. Unknown God. Well, in the 20th century, what happened was, well, then everything's equally valid. So we'll just imagine. You're right about Lenin. I think a lot of people don't realize he's really the founder of the emergent church. I've said that more than once. In a in a strange way, everybody's heard that song. Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven and there's no hell. Everything's all one. And so first they say, we can't know God. It's impossible if there is a God. Then, well, the entire, all of nature and everything's infused with deity, pantheism. And then we can't know what God said, so we'll imagine. Okay, so if you're going to imagine, what are you going to imagine? Well, what appeals? Everybody's good. Everything's evolving to heaven. There's no judgment. There's no anything but goodness. It's all evolving into godhood. And that was the emergent church. But this is the point that I was thinking about when I was preparing for this uh, Sunday school. I mentioned Dad with his little experiment with the corn. 
You can imagine what you want, but facts just don't go away because you don't like them. All right? And reality has its way of prevailing. And you can believe a lot of things. And I think sometimes Christians are easily led astray, and it's a sad thing, but you can think that things are a certain way, but if they're not, thinking that isn't going to help you. And if we can know what's actually true in accordance with reality, even that is, is uh, attacked. Well, you have your truth, I have mine. No, you can say you have your opinion, I have mine, but truth doesn't change. Okay? And I'm not right because I said it or I'm whoever I am. But if we can know what's true and have words to articulate what's true, that's always better, whether we like it or not. And because then in the long run, will be vindicated, even if it's not until eternity. The truth will ultimately prevail. But deception is what's going on most of the time. But here's a point. Why repentance is necessary. He has fixed a day in which, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the world here, um, if I remember right, is oikonoma, you know, oikomene, which means the inhabited, inhabitants of the earth, the inhabited world. So all the inhabited world, the inhabitants of the earth, it's all heading towards certain judgment. No, that always was a biblical or a Christian worldview. That history is linear, begins with creation, and is heading toward judgment. Now, when I researched the, the book I wrote, the second book, they reject that, utterly reject that. They say history is a spiral. You can say it's circular, everything's going around, but no, it's spiraling. So it starts here, wherever, even if it doesn't have a starting point, it's just spiraling toward heaven. <laughs> and so the delusion is you don't need to believe in God. You don't need to listen to God. You don't need to know what's true. Just imagine. Imagine. Reimagine. That didn't work. Reimagine again. Don't accept any biblical categories because you're all spiraling toward heaven. Another group, we had Lenin with Imagine, and I think it was Zeppelin, Staircase to Heaven. So in the 60s, we have this, everything's going to heaven. And the fact is, we either listen to God or we don't. Either he's spoken or he hasn't. And so he's fixed a day. It's certain. Now, we don't know what that day is, and we know there's some complexities. That Eric and I have talked about that, that. That doesn't mean it only happens in one day, but future judgment is coming. It's a complex event. And... Who is it that he's appointed? Jesus Christ, the one he raised from the dead. And I want to as I try to discipline myself to get to the end, and then we'll go back and go into details. So we get the, the impact of this narrative. Acts 17.32. So he's talking to Epicurean, Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill. And here's that's the audience. Here's what happened. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. 
but some believe. So there's three groups here. The mockers, the ones who deferred, well, maybe this was worth another hearing. Now, I've always read that to be just a version of mocking, but looking at it again into Greek and doing some more intensive research, I think Paul does intend, I mean, Luke tends to tell, wants to tell us there's mockery, there's, well, we hear a lot of ideas here. Maybe this one gets another hearing, but they didn't make a decision. This is assuming this is actually the council uh, on Eropagus and not just the place. But then a few did believe. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. That's the third group, among whom also were Dionysius, the Eropagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So this Dionysus was a member of the Oropagus Council, which likely had about 30 members. So it was interesting when I was reading all these resources I have now that I didn't have 20, 30 years ago. I remember I told you that some people claimed that Paul failed at Mars Hill. And then what he did wrong was he dealt with ideas and logic and evidence and whatever. He should have just done miracles. Now, in my research, I found out that even though certain people like John Wimber came up with that recently, that was around a long time before that. There was a guy in 1939, a scholar, who said, well, Paul failed. But that's not what Luke is telling us. The fact that, sir, you have 30 members, this important council of philosophers, one convert is a big deal. And Luke's point is that repentance for forgiveness of sins, Luke Acts, should be preached to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, so this is part of that uh, proof that that happened. He ends up in Athens with these sm really, really smart people, the pinnacle at the time of human achievement in architecture and thinking and writing. The Greek language was amazing. And they had inherited all that. And then you have Pax Romana with the travel system and the communication system which we think may not be a big deal. But I'll tell you what, it was a long time before anybody surpassed it. And the gospel did go to the end of the earth. One person converted on this council. It's a big deal. Yes. I'm curious as to between the time... Are you on? I think I am. Yeah, just yeah. talk into between it. The, between the time of the resurrection and this event, I'm wondering... How, the, besides the apostles going out and saying things like this, could the fact that uh, somebody who claimed to be God, Jesus, was resurrected, did this information get out any other way besides the apostles? Or was this perhaps the first time that people had heard this did the did the news of the resurrection precede the apostles going out in some cases well there was we can only go by what's revealed and then there's historical sources remember um, there was some secular historians that said that that uh, was a Claudius that kicked all the Jews out of Rome because of a tumult called by a Crestus which they think was Christ. So they, they, they originally just thought the Jews had their ideas, and if they just would behave themselves, it's all fine. But they were causing trouble, so we had to deal with it. So there, there's some vague idea there. But according to the Bible, this needed to get to Rome with some specifics so that we could have the truth proclaimed and that... Christian doctrine was not just a version of the Jew Judaism they already knew about. Do you have anything to add, Eric? No. But 
worth an ad. CNN yes. certainly didn't report that. Yeah. Well, I, well, I remember the at the um, yeah, good point. Remember at uh, in Matthew's account of the resurrection, there were Roman soldiers who took money to lie about it, and so that if this gets to the governor's ear ears that you were supposed to guard this dead body in the tomb, the tomb's empty, and that those soldiers knew more than anybody, but they'd rather have money than to tell the truth. If it gets to the governor's ears, we'll cover for you. Okay, give us the money. They knew what the truth was. So it was out there, but Luke is telling us Paul was laser-focused to end up going with this all the way to Rome. If I recall correctly, the quote that you'd given about Christus and Christ and the, the tumult that was probably from Pliny the Younger, and then there I was Tacitus, so. and so there were other secular historians that validate what the Bible said. But I think Bob's right; those sources didn't come later. The the apostles would have beat them to the punch, so to speak. So th- those secular historians wouldn't have gotten their data out prior to the apostles. Um, one thing I was going to just go back to Bob's book. Um, it was it, it's really interesting. How many in here do you have the book? Do you remember on the cover? It looks like there's a helix. And it's Bob a vortex, was, yeah. Exactly. And Bob, see, remember the emergents think they're evolving to heaven? Well, Bob, in the cover of his book, put a vortex. So it's not going up, it's going down and sucking them to hell. And it's important symbology, and it's something you can even use to say, no, you're not evolving upward, you're actually devolving yeah. downward. So yeah. I thought that I was very clever. Was, I'm not so sure if it was too cryptic whether people got it, but you know what's interesting, Eric? Um, I decided on that cover of the Vortex because they had their helix and their stairway to heaven. So I thought, no, it's ironic because you're going the wrong direction. Well, later I was looking up this Jürgen Moltmann, who is the subject of the, who I met by, or I heard, he, heard him speak after the fact when I was doing some further research. One of his followers has a book with a spiral on it, on the cover. And so uh, I think they don't realize where that spiral's going. So look at it this way. Let's make it simple. What does this deceived world think? We're on a, imagine there's no heaven and hell. We're on the stairway to heaven. What does the Bible say? There is a heaven and hell and you're facing certain judgment. And you're accountable because God has furnished proof to all people by sending a man, Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, fully human, fully God, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and was raised, as he said, on the third day. And he appeared to many witnesses as it says in Luke Acts, and he ascended to the right hand of God, Psalm 110 and verse 1, and he's going to come again, and there'll be judgment. Now, it's a complex event, but it'll happen. So the choice is, do we have a pagan worldview? Just to simplify this, do we have a pagan worldview where everything's evolving to godhood and that the dreams of the Babel builders weren't bad, they're just delayed. Antichrist will come along and say, we're going to fix that problem that God created when he drew out all these boundaries, which is in here, by the way. Or is judgment coming? Which is it? And the Bible says we're heading toward judgment unless we repent and believe the gospel. And so we see here that even one of the members of this council, and I think that's a good reading. That's why he's called an Arapagite, turn to Christ. That's a big deal. Just look at today. And uh, for some reason, I still watch political debates, even though it's very disturbing. But you notice the uprising of just one person is a naysayer. Everybody's saying the same thing. And somebody gets up and says, no. This isn't right. I don't believe this. I'm not going to put up with this. And it causes a big turmoil. So imagine 30 people 
that are part of the council to decide what is worth hearing, the philosophers, one of them comes to Christ. What do you think that's going to do? It's going to cause an upheaval. It's going to make things happen. Now they may all just kick him out, which is fine because he's part of the church. So uh, let me just read Dr. Schnabel on that. Luke singles out the conversion of a certain Dionysos, this is Schnabel, a member of the Rapagus Council, who also came to faith and joined Paul. His membership in the Rapagus Council implies that he had been an archon, one of the highest offices in Athens. He belonged to the Aristotic, as aristocratic class of the Decurionese, who were chosen from among the respected citizens of the city who were at least 25 years of age, whose financial means were between 20,000 and 100,000 sesteres, whatever that is, financial means from which they were expected to pay for the expenses that were connected with their municipal, municipal or cultic responsibilities, unquote. So this was significant. So I say that to emphasize that those people who want to change what the Christian message is and how it's preached and how it's presented by claiming that Paul failed on Mars Hill and so he changed and went to doing signs and wonders are false. They don't read well. Luke does not portray Paul's message in Athens as a failure. He preached the very thing that the apostles, the early apostles were commissioned to preach in Luke 24, in Acts 1. Paul's converted in Acts 9. He preached repentance and the proof being the resurrection of Jesus Christ when I was in Bible college in the early 70s, Reverend Phillips, uh, was one of my teachers, said, and, and now it's easier to find this out, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ was mentioned in every single sermon in the book of Acts. Every one. So Paul's doing what everybody else preached in Acts and that Christ commissioned, which is also to t- teach repentance, And so this is not a failure. There's a day of judgment coming. There's a universal command to repent. And they need to turn from vain idols to serve the living God. And um, human imagination will not solve anybody's problems. Now, if you think about it, Um, they're feeling around in the dark. I'm going back a little bit here. I wanted to get through all that because I haven't yet. Think about that. Feeling around in the dark. So maybe some people, everybody thinks that's all there is. You feel around in the dark. Maybe you become an atheist or an agnostic. Eric and I know somebody who did that that we had for a teacher. And he was a brilliant philosopher and was teaching theology at the seminary. And then he left there to go to, I think, Norway and be some sort of a philosopher. Now he's just promoting atheism. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's all there is. Nihilism, meaningless, hopeless, futile. So his brilliance didn't bring him to God, did he? Did it? So they're groping around in the dark. Here's the question. Are we left to grope around in the dark, or can we know what God said, who Jesus Christ is? Can we believe in him and trust in him? Can we turn to him by God's grace and power and find forgiveness of sins? Paul says yes, Peter says yes, Jesus says yes. In fact, it's not just an option, it's a command. 
So we need to get it right. And I've mentioned preachers who say repentance has no place in the gospel. Has anybody else here ever heard that? Boy, there was a battle over that in the 80s. There was a vicious attacks against John MacArthur because he taught repentance for forgiveness of sins. And they accused him of teaching salvation by works. It's always the same kind of battle. So now, I wanted to get to that because otherwise there's not much of a wrap. And I know we got some intervening things coming up. Let's go back. And we got 10 minutes. Anything you want to discuss about this Harizo, if you remember? This um, God determining the appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. We covered that. That's pretty amazing, really. I appreciate when Eric taught through Revelation. You mentioned a book by Harold Honer. I have his commentary on Ephesians. What is it called? It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Right. Yeah, and it's a and good so, read. And so it's about basically the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Right, right. What did he conclude, Eric, about that 69th week? Yeah, he, um, in the, his book, what he'll do is he lays out what day of the week that Christ dies, and then what year did that occur in. He concludes 33 AD, and then he concludes that that is a fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. So Daniel's 70th week ends when the Messiah is cut off. I'm sorry, that's the 69th week. And now we're in this parentheses. And as Bob has mentioned numerous times, the parentheses is not insignificant. That's part of God's plan to go after the Gentiles. But one day the 70th week is going to come forth, and that's the parousia, the last seven years. So the coming of Christ is conceived of as a seven-year program. As Bob mentions, it's a yeah. complex Yeah, so event. first he comes forward to the church, and then you have this exactly. tribulation period. Yep. And so the weeks were each uh, year, weeks of years, right? Yeah, seven years, exactly. And so that's what brought this right up to this decree. There's yep. time markers. So I don't have that book. I need to get it. Harold Honer. Uh, so this is so specific and so collaborated by actual events in history, there's no reason to not believe. Why, with all this overwhelming evidence, does, doesn't everyone believe? Does anybody have an answer to that? Well, I, I just think, you know, what does the Bible say? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I think that when you come to God's word, for example, I remember a guy back in high school, I was trying to get him to read the Bible, and he did. And he goes, it makes no sense. And this guy was brilliant. He was a sharp kid. Oh, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And, and I thought, what is he talking about? And I got thinking about it. And I thought, the Bible really doesn't make sense unless, you're in, unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to it, right? Right. I mean, it's the Spirit that saves you. And the Spirit opens up your eyes to Jesus Christ. When He said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will reveal to you repentance and righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the coming judgment. In other words, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that really teaches you what the Bible is saying. Right. But that's right. However, it doesn't mean that the facts weren't always there and they weren't verifiable. Right. It's just that uh, I think there's a term called the noetic effects of sin. Have you heard that one, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see, noetic effects of sin means... In the fall, humans' ability and willingness to know accurately is also affected. Okay? And then what is known about God, they don't like. Okay? It's uh, Romans 1. Eric, well, that's right. You Find the passage and have uh, Brian read it. <laughs> Romans 1, remember where it talks about how they, their um, ignorance is willing? They sin against every way God ever revealed himself. You know what I'm going to do? We'll get some readers and we're going to have them here in this pulpit. I, I have them in my bag. I just keep <laughs> Okay. I can't resist a chance to tease Eric. <laughs> Romans 1. Somewhere in my notes here, but I went on ahead. 
suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Keep reading. Because that which is known about God is. is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Right. And so Paul goes on to say that every form of revelation that's ever been, humans have sinned against. General revelation special revelation, miracles, the resurrection of Christ, what God did through Israel and Egypt, the Passover, the mighty deeds of God, the works that he did in making Israel a nation. Everything fulfilled prophecy, which is unbelievable, how God specifically prophesied and things actually happen, then the supreme proof that makes everyone accountable is the coming of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, who was literally crucified and died and shed his blood for remission of sins and was raised from the dead and appeared to many witnesses and ascended to heaven. That's facts. Everything points to the truth. But why doesn't everybody believe? Hardness of heart. They make something according to their technology, technos, and technique, and imagination. Yes. What was that term you used, the noetic? What was Noetic it? effects of sin. Yeah, okay. So would you agree or disagree that through the law of entropy, would that continue to get worse and worse, or isn't that affected that way? Well, uh, entropy is about the heat loss in the universe, second law of thermodynamics, which proves that the universe is not eternally old. I knew that before I became a believer. It was biochemistry that convinced me of intelligent design. I remember the moment when I was sitting in a class in organic chemistry, and then we had a quarter on biochemistry, which was very, very complex and very, very difficult. And in one of the lectures, the professor put this massive, some of you heard the story, molecule up on the chalkboard, and we were studying carbon-carbon bonding. Star Trek was right. Uh, the Earth is a carbon-based life system and he was showing how that's possible through the how carbon uniquely bonds in different ways See, and so you have these bonds and then hemoglobin has an iron molecule that attaches to the heme and it goes through the body it's released so you can burn energy so I don't know what the belief system of this professor was there were 300 students it was a big lecture hall and after he put it on the board, he turned around and said, if one electronic bond in this massive molecule was different, we'd all be dead and life would be impossible. March 1971. And I remember sitting there saying, I have to believe that God created the world. That's not much of a step. But it was a step. Um, I didn't become a born-again Christian until about three months later, but I couldn't deny that God created. Same time I was studying the laws of thermodynamics, and I know that the universe was not eternally old. So then now I had two pieces of knowledge. Human life can only exist because of God's design and supernatural creation because accidents don't create that kind of complexity. And the universe is not eternally old because we're still here. So did I become God? Did I come to God right away? No. Did I become thankful? No. Did I start serving God? No. But I knew I was, it was all true three months later when I came to Christ. But that was through God's supernatural intervention in my life. 
So I would say, no, some people say, well, then what's the point? Why, t- why put these proofs out here? Why say these sort of things? Because God is honored when we proclaim the truth, and as Paul did, and people are held accountable for their own unbelief. Why run away from the evidence when the evidence points to the truth? We should do that. But ultimately, we have to call for repentance and faith in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for being patient with us sinners, giving us time to repent and believe in you before that judgment. Pray for Eric as he preaches to us today that you give him wisdom and boldness to proclaim the truth. And Lord, may we be those who trust you and believe in you and may your gospel continue to go out that people may repent and believe like this person was on Mars Hill, the one person who did believe. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.